It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody could ever tell you that you couldn't do it, because you did. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants Mobile app. We'll punch you in the nose for 60 minutes with a relentless competitive attitude. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. That's John Schmelka, Jeff Fiegels. Welcome to Big Blue Kickoff Live on Giants.com and the Giants Mobile app. Happy Tuesday, everybody. John Schmelka and Jeff Fiegels. Uh, the number, we're back in the studio at the Quest Diagnostics Training Center. We got our guy Brian back screening the calls for Jeff and I. Jeff is still at his home. I am here. The phone number, so we're back to the old number, folks. It's 201-939-4513. Mm. Um, get in. Sounds, we, we, sounds we, familiar. It is. We got. We got. I mean, we have a screener. We got three lines, so give us a call. Get in. Type of, we're a little bit professional today. That's kind of good. Are you telling me that I haven't been professional for my basement for the my past point, my, no, 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 four no, months? No, Is that what you're saying, Jeff? No, that was I'm a very Lance Metal type of remark, you know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm just joking. Yeah. I think we're back <laughs> to having what would take to be real professional. Yes. Mixer. Yeah. So, you know, and I, and listen, listen, you know, John, I'm just kidding. Oh, because I know nothing I about the mixer I other know. than a mixer is when maybe a dance with men and women. I don't, you know, that's it. <laughs> I'm just giving you a hard time. It's all good. Um, but yeah, so we're back. Um, Jeff and, or rather, Paul and Lance did their show yesterday. Jeff and I will be here today. Uh, we're not going to take a ton of calls today because we got a lot to do. We heard from the three Giants uh, coordinators today special teams coordinator Thomas McGahey, offensive coordinator Jason Garrett, defensive coordinator. Uh, Patrick Graham. We'll hear from them early on in the show. And then um, I did a expansive, mm, I, I guess no. is the word I'll use. No, you, um, that's a little bit light. <laughs> <laughs> review of... In-depth, expansive. Yes, of uh, uh, Daniel Jones's rookie season. Uh, I'll be tweeting a lot of it out with, uh, with, with a lot of video I have accompanying it as well. Uh, but Jeff and I will kind of go through that little report. And we will talk about that over the course of the show as well. But, Jeff, I want to start with the coordinators, and I think that's, that's kind of the timely thing. I will go in the order in which they spoke to the media, and we do have you on the show, Jeff. So who better to start with than special teams coordinator Thomas McGahee? And Thomas McGahee started by uh, being asked about how he's going to evaluate kick and punt returners with no preseason games. Let's listen in. You figure it out. You t- <laughs> I don't know, man. We just out there and coached them up. You know, uh, I'm sure, sure we'll, do, we'll do some things uh, to evaluate them throughout the process as far as just catching balls and just, you know, just going through the process of practicing and, and see who's doing what. You know, you know how that is. That, that return game is, is different. Uh, you don't know until you get to a game and you put a guy in a situation. So we won't have games. So that's just the reality of, of our situation. And we just got to make do with what we have. That's Thomas McGahee and Jeff. Look, that's the thing. As you all know, Jeff, Guys can catch the ball in practice, and that can be pretty easy. But when they see guys kind of coming down, trying to hit them as they're trying to catch the ball, then all of a sudden things become a little bit more difficult. No question. Ball security uh, is really what you – when when you're on returns, punt returns, kickoff return, give the ball back to the offense, number one rule, right? So guys that don't do it all the time or guys that just do it at practice and have never done it in the game, uh, Thomas McGay, he's been around long enough to understand – I want a veteran or I want a guy that's done it. And I would look at this roster right now, John. There isn't too many guys on the roster that can return punts. Right now they have uh, Golden Tate and Jabril as your two punt returners. Um, we both know that they can do it. And by the way, Jabril Peppers could be a heck of a, a guy to do that. One of the best in the league, by the way. He, he was phenomenal in Michigan doing oh, that. Oh, my. And just you know, just that type of talent. He can make things – makes guys miss. 
Um, the, what sometimes scares me a little bit about Jabril Peppers being a defensive player is that ball security, but I think he'll be okay with it. And then when you talk about kickoff return, you got Corey Ballantyne and Darius Slayton, so two guys that can get up and go. Um, so behind them, with those four, uh, you may, might want to go and try to find a younger guy that you feel confident in, but it's tough and because I, what he said, you just can't see him in, in, in games, and, like you mentioned. And, Jeff, I know you. I know people might argue against this, but in a big game in the fourth quarter, you're getting the ball back. You're down seven. I'm putting Saquon Barkley back there on kick return. I don't care. Sorry. Well, I'm doing it. I, I'm I, doing it. He, look, it, it. I'm not saying do it every time, but maybe he gets four or five high-leverage kick returns over the course of the year. That's it. That's yeah. it. And I, we're going to be able to soon enough understand the philosophy and the mentality of Joe Judge. Um, is he going to be that guy where he just doesn't care what anybody thinks and he's not going to do it, or is he going to do it? We'll find out sooner or later. And the other big issue with Thomas McGahee is, of course, the place kicker situation. Alger Rosas let go earlier in the season after that off-the-field incident. Uh, and they brought in veteran Chandler Contanzaro, who Thomas McGahee was asked about. Chandler's a guy who's, who's a veteran kicker in this league. Uh, He's performed at a high level before, and we're just hoping to get him back to that level. Uh, he's, he's a hard worker and very conscientious, and it's just, you know, his availability, availability was there, and uh, we took advantage of bringing him in. And hopefully we can get him rolling and, and uh, get him up the bar. Was he still training, like, for the last year on his own, or is he just starting from scratch again now? Yeah, he was still training. So, Jeff, this is a veteran who has experience at MetLife Stadium. I don't think I've been on a show with you when you've given me your take on Cotanzaro being added, so why don't you give the fans what you think about that move and what McGay had to say about him. Well, he said it from the beginning. He's a veteran, and he's been a proven veteran. He's actually had some really good statistical seasons until last season when he walked away from the game because he just didn't know how to kick his way out of a paper bag, and that's where he said that Thomas McGay, he's saying he's still working. He's trying to work out the, the kinks and the cobwebs of what happened to him last year, and believe me, sometimes a year off could help kickers. You know, you kind of clear the mechanism, if they will. And with him, Jeff, it was extra points that were a problem. That, which, yeah, which is but listen, probably those are still, oh, those no, are correct, still but 30, 30-something yard field goals, right? So, in your head, is that a mental thing, though, probably? 100%. Or, uh, exactly. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, you look at um, kickers, they're always looking at the waiver wire, and they're easily replaced, as a lot of people think. Um, and, you know, we've always talked about Kaskowski being – you know, up in New England and has a, a history with Joe Judge, and we'll see what happens there. But when you look at the um, the, the contract, it's very giant-friendly, if you will, um, because they don't really have – if something does fall apart during uh, training camp and, and they go into the first game or something, that, you know, you, you're okay there. So we'll see what happens. But you know what, John? You don't have a lot of time here, considering when the season's going to start and what today's date is. Uh, there's not a lot of time to be – on the field working out and, and getting that chemistry with the snapper and the holder. You have a new snapper this year. Remember that with the retirement of uh, Zach Diossi, you know, Casey Kreider comes in here, who, by the way, he went to the Pro Bowl, so he's a good one. And you've got Riley Dixon. So those three guys will be working a lot this in the next month. No question about it. All right, let's get to Jason Garrett, or rather Patrick Graham. Okay. Uh, who's next here? One of them. Yes, we have Patrick Graham, the defensive coordinator. I have to look at the uh, order on my computer, which is further away from me. Um, let's go to Patrick Graham next, Jeff. And we've talked a lot about uh, this defense wanting to be multiple this year, but also they have a young defense and not a lot of time in the offseason. So how do you kind of mm -hmm. be multiple, but at the same time do things so that players can understand and execute it early in the season? And here's what Patrick Graham had to say about that. I think right now it's mostly based on, you know, past film, what we know about them as a player from there. 
but also just the mental part of it. What can they handle so far and during meetings, the meetings we had in the spring, during the meetings we've had so far in the last few weeks. And I think it's partly our job as coaches to make it as simple as possible that they understand the core elements of what we want to do defensively because even with it be, trying to be multiple, the idea is to be multiple within a limited amount of scheme just so that, you know, we're doing all the fundamentals that we're looking for on defense, you know, in terms of, you know, playing with our hands, playing with good pad level, um, setting the edge, you know, defending the deep part of the field and, you know, and tackling. That's the main, those are the main focus, uh, what we focus on and trying to focus on that. And yet the first part of the answer you was asked kind of how do you, can you tell what guys are good at because you haven't had them on the field yet so you know where to fit them into your scheme. That was the first part of the answer. And I thought the second part of the answer was, was a smart one because you keep, you know, the functioning scheme simple but you have different guys do different things in different spots and you keep the individual responsibilities simple and that's how you're multiple in a scheme but at the same time make it, feasible for these young guys with little off-season work to execute it in a season like this. And it's tough. I mean, I, I think that, you know, Patrick is a smart man, and I think he, he's smart in a sense what he said about fit, the fit, you know, fundamentals, covering the field. Uh, you know, you got to be able to understand where you're supposed to be on a play, and those are the mental aspects of a scheme or a being multiple, right? I mean, if you got a kid that can't play coverage on third down, but he rushes the passer, you got to find him where he's going to go. You got to understand where he has to be. So I think it's important that they all understand that. And it's also important that the coaching staff gets to know these guys as best they can because they don't have a lot of time. Where now I believe because there's no preseason and there's really no uh, ways to. I guess go out and, and evaluate them in a professional atmosphere, they got to look back at some of their college tape and see some of the things that they did well in certain situations that would be the same at this level. And what I mean by that is, is scheme and, and where you line up. I think that's important. Yeah, because remember a big thing that Patrick Graham and Joe Judge have talked about since the beginning, Jeff, is figuring out what your team is good at and then building your right. scheme. And what, what does the scheme do? It determines what you're asking your players to do on yeah. any given play. So you want to mold that. But I thought it was a very good question. And how do you know what your players are very good at to mold your scheme? Well, you're not going to see them do any football stuff until the end of the week, which is basically the middle of August. It's not easy. Well, and the other aspect of this is the from the coaching component is that, remember, he also said he wants coaches that, that know how to teach. And so there's going to be a, a very accelerated teaching curve here to get these guys to be where they need to be and understand concept. And remember, uh, Patrick will not go out there and throw the book at these guys if they don't understand it. It's going to be a slow process. And I think I mentioned this before on our show that the first month, just like the first month in football normally, uh, how the tackling and everything is a little bit behind, um, it's really going to be behind this year once they start, because especially for a new team like the Giants. But so you got to be patient. And I think as a coach, you take that patience with you. And understand by installing things, you got to kind of slowly get through it. And, it, and it's kind of trial and, and, and error. So I'm going to install this stuff, and let's see who can do it well. And maybe they don't. In a game, we're not going to do that next week. Yeah, so. believe it or not, Jeff, we did not get a question today about the kind of really young cornerback core. It was part of a two-part question. And Pat yeah. answered yeah. the pass rush part of the question, but not the cornerback part of the question. So we really didn't get anything from him on, on that second cornerback spot, and, and we'll get to that in a second. But he did talk about the pass rushers, Jeff, and how it's different and more difficult for younger pass rushers, maybe even when compared to some other positions in the NFL. 
In terms of the pass rush, I think, you know, when you're dealing with young players coming into the league, you know, uh, just like any other position here in the NFL, it's different from college. It's different from college. The pass rush is different from college. And what I mean by that, they got to start to understand and learn some of the intricacies of how to rush the passer in this league. You're dealing with, you know, the 32 of them in the world that can throw the ball. Um, how are we going to try to affect that, that passer? And understanding that, you know, if you just run up the field, you know, there's a chance he's probably going to step up. He can still get the ball off with accuracy, throwing inside throws, which are the easiest throws. So trying to get the guys to understand how we got to fill the pass rush lanes, how we got have to work together to affect the quarterback um, effectively. And it's a, it's a process. And so we're right, you know, in the beginning of the process right now, you know, we did some, we tried to tackle some of it on film during the spring. But right now we're in the process of combination of the film, uh, you know, the drills on the field and just kind of getting acclimated and figuring out what everybody does well and see how, what's the best plan that we can put together to utilize the talent that we have. So, you know, again, these guys are young, but, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, just these guys, it's all about performance and what they do. So once we get to the field, we'll find out and get a better idea. So that's what he had to say about the pass rushers, Jeff. And I thought it was interesting <laughs> that, we see in in some of the analytics, and we had this on our interview uh, with uh, George Shahuri from Pro Football Focus on the Giants huddle. You guys should go check it out if you haven't listened to it. And he made the point that most NFL players, Jeff, make that big jump in their second year. Mm-hmm. But two positions that don't and sometimes take longer are offensive linemen and pass rushers. So I think it goes to the type of the, the the type of stuff that Patrick Graham is talking about. In that college, you could probably just say, all right, Zoom, get up field, do your thing. You can be a little bit reckless. In the NFL, if you don't do it and win in a disciplined way, these quarterbacks are either elusive enough, whether you're talking about the, the Mahomeses and the Lamar Jacksons and the Deshaun Watsons and even the, you know, the Carson Wentzes, guys like that, or they're just savvy enough like, you know, some of the older, less mobile guys, the Drew Brees, the Matt Ryans, the, you know, Tom Brady's, where they can just step up in the pocket and avoid you a little bit. So I think mm-hmm. it's a very important point that Patrick Graham made, which is why it takes pass rushers sometimes a little bit longer to get used to doing things in the NFL. Well, he mentioned there's 32 best in the world, meaning the quarterbacks, right? Well, you're also talking about 64 guys that are best in the world too that would be the left and the right tackle i mean <laughs> those guys know what they're doing uh and especially the left tackles that make a lot of money to protect that one of 32s in the world right so i think these young guys coming into the league you're right it takes a while for them to understand we use this word so much it's concept i mean where you have to fit on the play what is the down and distance what is the situation all these things that go into learning the game of football rather than pinning your ears back and just running as hard as you can and hoping that something happens. You know, you can get away with that in college because your ability a lot of times is is overwhelming to the guy that you are across because he's probably a guy that may not make it in the National Football League. So there is a lot of adjustments to go with it. But I really believe that Patrick Graham and his staff will be patient with these guys trying to figure out a scheme and some sort of an alignment that will give them the advantage. And that's why they get paid the big bucks to be coaches. Yeah, a couple other things that Patrick Graham said that I didn't pull the audio for, Jeff. Uh, he talked about how he kind of sees himself as a quote-unquote old D-line coach. Well, he and- is. You know, he, he started that with the Giants. And, you know, I was reading on, on uh, Giants.com um, one of the interviews on there that they were talking about. And, you know, he is a guy that just kind of once in a while he'll just drop in that. Uh, Dalvin Tomlinson was saying that he'll just drop in that defensive line 
uh, room because that's those are his favorite positions. And so, yeah, he's a defensive line guy. He and really he's, is. he was asked what his non-negotiables are as a coach. <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Right? Yeah. And these were the ones he gave. He goes, you have to be team first, value the process, and maximize the limited time that you have, which means basically apply yourself when you're there. And then he said, play in proper football position. And by that point, he means hands, um, eyes, and feet all in the right place. And finally, toughness. And he said a big key is how you impact the other team's running game and how you contribute on special teams coverage. Those, those were his non-negotiables, Jeff, for the defense. Well, I like the word toughness because, you know, um, if you're a defensive lineman or even on any defensive player, you've got you to gotta impose your will against the next person, and that comes from being tough. It also comes from when that guy whoops you, and by the way, you know, those defensive ends and, and pass rushers, they're the, the best ones in the league are in a 20 to 25% clip as far as success. You talk about a low percentage of how every play works in their advantage. It's not a lot, but when it does, it can be impactful. You know, so when you look at a kicking position where kickers are in the 80s and 90% effective in what they do, but a pass rusher sometimes doesn't get to the quarterback 15, 20% of the time. You know, so you got to be patient. And I think what happens with young guys, John, is they get in a game and they all of a sudden they've been taught a certain way for the rest for all of their lives about trying to win, win, win. And they've won at levels where they know they can. And then they get impatient at this level because they're dealing with guys that are really good. So they have to develop their skill. And that's what coaching comes in. Yeah, no question about it. Okay, let's get to Jason Garrett. And actually, one more thing on Patrick Graham. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I forgot. He was asked about Leonard Williams, and he said one thing he really liked about Leonard Williams was that he's very inquisitive and is asking a lot of questions all the time and always wants to know why you're doing certain things, where exactly you have to mm-hmm. be. That's so he, he, he did appreciate Leonard Williams' mental approach. That was the only other thing I wanted to mention. And Dexter Lawrence, he said, look, he said, I believe he said he is a bubbly personality, and he said, I am not usually bubbly, so it is a good contrast to the way my personality is. <laughs> that was funny. Mm-hmm. And then and he basically said that, look, just as, you know, his size, strength, and athleticism combination is just really, really impressive. Well, listen, Leonard Williams, if that, that's good news because, you know, I always tell my kids and, and my wife tells me all the time, you know, listen, the more questions you ask, the better prepared you're going to be. That's thought, why he's doing I, it. I thought you were going to say your wife found your personality to be too bubbly. <laughs> no, no. No. Maybe some too bubbly, yes. That, that would probably be the answer. But for, for football sense, then when you're asking questions, it's not that you don't – you know, sometimes it might just be because you don't understand, but you want to understand. You want to understand not only what you're supposed to be doing, but, you know, maybe the question is, is why, you know, why are we lining up in this situation and you're, and you're asking me to do this? And once it's explained to him, then he understands it better and he can execute the, the play. And so that makes a big difference. If you're just sitting back listening and you're not asking questions, that scares me. That really does, because I don't know if it's really, if it's really getting through to you. And a lot of coaches, what they'll do in meetings, John, to, to reinforce, are you getting what I'm saying, is that he, the coaches will turn around and ask the question back to the players, what did I mean by when I say this or this? So you always got to be on your, on your best behavior as far as listening in a meeting because if you don't, have the, if you don't know the answer, then ask. To, to, to say, listen, coach, I don't get this, but when it's turned around and asked you to explain it and you don't understand it, you look like a fool. So that's good news. Yes, asking a question, and this is the same thing as Brian can attest to. We always said to our interns, if you have a question, ask a question. Mm-hmm. And much of that, if you ask a question, tell us you don't know something, we'll tell you exactly you know, what you need to do to, to figure it out. Right. And once you do, 
then you're going to be good to go. Sure. And it's not a problem. But and if, if you it, ask him more than twice, then we know we got a problem. So we'll give you two two times, right? Yeah, that's fair. You two know? times is okay. Three is not going to – I guess three questions for the same, I guess, topic, then we've got a problem. Okay. Did you say put this in this area or this one? <laughs> <laughs> Did you say take this plug out and plug this one in, John? Yes, I've told you 10 times. Jeff, I told you not to leave your phone. I told you not to leave your phone. <laughs> hey, believe it or not, I haven't left my phone. That's because you haven't gone anywhere. I was going to say because I haven't gone anywhere. <laughs> it's a good thing. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's get to Jason Garrett. First, uh, he obviously was asked about uh, Daniel Jones. He went to a big spiel about how he liked him in college. You kind of heard all that from him before. But this is what he said about what it's been like working with Daniel uh, over the Zoom calls and since he's been working with him in person this summer. Since I've been here, he's been a real joy to work with. Uh, there's no question, you know, he is a football guy. He loves football, and uh, he's, he's always so prepared. He's always studying his stuff. He always has great questions. And it wants to get better. And uh, my experience has been when you have that kind of approach and that kind of attitude, if, if you have some ability, you're going to keep growing and getting better every day. And he's certainly done that. The thing you just like so much about, about Daniel is just his approach. You know, he clearly has ability. Uh, he, he's someone who's big. He's strong. He's athletic. He's got a really good arm. He's got all the tools you're looking for. Uh, but the thing that really jumps out is the approach that he takes every day. Like I said, he's a ball guy. He loves ball. He works very hard at it. He's always trying to refine his skills. He's always trying to gain more knowledge and find ways to become a better quarterback uh, individually and for our team. So that's what you get most excited about. So there you have it, Jeff. That's uh, Garrett on Jones. And not surprising, he just echoes all the stuff we already knew about Daniel in terms mm -hmm. of how much he cares, how hard he works. He's a smart guy. And it's just a matter of whether or not he's going to be able to translate it to the field, which is something we'll do a lot about on the second half of our show here. Yeah, and I think that, you know, with Daniel, he's a guy that got tutored by Eli Manning, one of the best there ever was as far as, you know, preparation. Um, and so, and, and, and I don't think he was lacking that coming into the National Football League. I think it's just has been reinforced with him about this is, this is how you do it, you know. And so from coming from Eli and, and being in that quarterback room for as long as he was with him, he obviously picked up some good habits. And I will tell you this, now, now that he's with Jason Garrett, he's going to even pick up even better habits because I feel like what a great maturation process for Daniel Jones with Jason Garrett. Um, not only played the position, coached the position forever, understands the position, and also can teach the position is exactly what Joe Judge wants in his coaches. So I think if you're if you're a Giants fan, you got to be really really excited about having Jason Garrett both helping the quarterbacks and also calling those football plays because those go hand in hand. And if you have the offensive coordinator that is also the the really the quarterback coach when you think about it. Um, they're going to be able to have these meetings and talks about certain plays, why this will work, why this doesn't work. You know, one of the big things, John, too, that happens with these quarterbacks, and I know that speaking with Eli on multiple times, him just asking him questions about game plans and things like that, there's times when they got, they got things in the, in the game plan and all Saturday night they're out. You know, after watching film the night before the game or coming to the meeting, Eli would say, you know what, uh, Kevin, I don't like this play. I just don't think it's going to work. And Kevin would be like, well, then it's out. We're throwing it out. Take it out of the first 15. You know, we were not going to put that in. So for those of those, you know, the first 15, a lot of these teams call their first 15 plays in a, in a game. And those first 15 plays are put together pretty, pretty religiously as far as, you know, how they're going to work and do you feel comfortable with them. No question about it. Then we also had Jason Garrett asked about one of the best players in the whole NFL, and that's Saquon Barkley. Let's listen mm. to what he had to say about Saquon. He's just one of those guys who's – such a good football player. We had to try to tackle him in Dallas and, and all of our energy 
uh, was, was put on that because he's such a difference-making player. But again, I want to go back to his approach. Uh, talk about a first-class person. Talk about someone who loves football. Talk about who wants to someone who wants to work hard, do everything he can to be the best player he can be, the best teammate he can be. He's a sterling example of that. So he's been a real joy to work with. No question about it. So Jeff, I mean, that's the thing. And I think early on in this year, I think it's a really smart move by the Giants to just rely a lot on Saquon Barkley. You know, obviously there are some scheme things with the run game, offensive line getting into sync, but. Pounding the ball is a lot easier to do earlier in the year without a lot of practice time than throwing the ball in a, in a complicated passing attack. Sure. And you know what? Your passing game will, will help if you can start running the football and pounding the ball in first and second downs, right? I mean, that gets you into those what we call those manageable third downs. And by the way, if you're in manageable third downs, uh, you can run the football on third down too. Um, you just can't run the football on third and nine all day. So um, I, I know that he loves the energy that Saquon brings to the table. I know that he likes the fact that he's healthy. And I think that that's important um, because if you were going into this offseason and going into the season with him being just somewhat healthy, that changes the that changes the narrative, in my opinion, for the whole offense. But now, you know, knowing that he has got 100% ready to go, you can use him 100% in every different way, in passing game too. Because I think we're really going to – I mean, we did our over-unders on the show. Um, I think I might have been one of the other – I don't know how many did it, but I took the over, uh, whatever the number was, for the receptions out of the backfield for him. And I think that, I think he's going to shatter it. Yeah, I think we had really... 66 and a half on receptions. And you yeah, and I know that's a lot. And he had more – his rookie year he had more than that. Um, but I feel that they're going to really utilize him in the passing game. All right, two things I want to get to, Jeff, before we get to um, our mm -hmm. big Daniel Jones review. But in the meantime, it is 201-939-4513, 201-939-4513. If you want to get a couple calls in now before we get into the Jones stuff, you can right here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Also, you can send in your questions on Twitter to hashtag GiantsChat, or you could check us out if you want to send in your questions via our online portal. Go to Giants.com slash podcast slash BBK questions. Again, it's Giants.com slash podcast slash BBK questions. So, Jeff, a couple things for you. Um, Garrett, by the way, didn't have a whole much lot else. He didn't really want to give up anything on what the offense is going to look like. You know, we mm -hmm. talk about the importance of the offensive line, but uh, nothing really earth-shattering there. Remember, Jason Coward is a head coach for a long time. He, he has the coach-speak thing kind of, you know, <laughs> really figured out there. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, not – not a whole lot there from, from Coach Garrett, which makes sense. They haven't had these guys on the field much, so it makes sense. Anyway, so two things I want to get to you, Jeff, in terms of things going on um, around the league and kind of uh, in the NFL world. One is college football, mm. and, you know, we talked about this last week with Dane Brugler, and, you know, it looks like maybe the Big Ten and the Pac-12, you know, could at some point be canceling their seasons, but it sounds like the main Southern conferences, the Big 12, the ACC, and the SEC – are going to try to continue to play. That's kind of what it looks like right now. Obviously, your son attends Rucker, uh, Rutgers, which is in the Big Ten. Uh, what are you hearing, and what are your thoughts? Well, first of all, my I'm, I'm hearing just what everybody else is hearing. Um, and, you know, I have a couple thoughts, and I'll keep them real quickly. You know, last week when the Big Ten came out with their schedule, you knew that there was – you kind of sat there and said, you know, okay, we've got a chance with this season. And and now, all of a sudden, uh, there's a lot of things have changed and, and – and, and really has gone south since since then. Um, in my opinion, the whole thing about this COVID deal is that there is a lot of unknown when it comes to this health issue as far as the heart. And I don't think that a lot of these 
teams understand that the ramifications and the long-term effects of COVID when a player gets it, that, you know, what can happen as far as cardiovascularly, it lungs and heart situation. So I think that's a big concern. Um, and, and I believe that, you know, we're heading in a, in a, in a, down a path where there are so many teams that are doing all these testing and they're not coming up positives. So, that, so there's a lot of question, uh, what's going on here? And I think that now there was this emergency meeting yesterday in the Pac-12 Pac and then the Big Ten and they were going to cancel the season. Well, I haven't seen anything today. So there's something going on here that maybe they're going to move the season back. I hope so. I just care that, you know, I, I want a football season. I love college football. You know that, John. And I just hope that the players are safe enough. And, you know, Zach has been tested. I think we were counting the other day. He's been tested 15 times now. Mm. Um, and so and the numbers are going down over there at Rutgers. And as long as they can continue to go down and there's a way to keep the players safe, hopefully the football will return and it can keep going forward. So, But we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see. We're all just yeah. trying to figure things out the best we can at this point, right? We're kind of still in figure it out mode. And, you know, when you talk about a lot of the other coaches in the league, they want to, they want to play. They're, they're like, and so do the players, you know? I mean, um, Trevor Lawrence was a, a real advocate for the players yesterday saying, hey, we, you know, if we can just come out and, you know, and he makes it, this makes a, a total sense to me. Yeah, the players aren't in a bubble at their schools, but they're better off where they're at than they are going home. It's a good point. I can tell you that. Because once they go home, there's no restrictions. There's no, like, cameras on you, or there's no coaches telling you to put your mask on. There's no coaches doing this. It's just – it's, and I, I think that they're better off staying where they're at, and especially, like, at a campus like Rutgers where there isn't going to be any students, John. So yeah. they will be kind of in their own little bubble there. And the other important thing to remember is that it's going to come down to what's, if, what's eventually going to – you know, if they get these seasons started, you know – What's going to end them is too many people testing positive. And just look at Major League Baseball. Every time they've had a positive test in Major League Baseball, they've been able to trace that person back to see them doing something and going somewhere where they're That's not right. supposed to go. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it, all these players want to play. Well, then, guys, if you guys really want to play, then be responsible. And if you are, guess what? You're going to yeah. be able to play. And that's what it's going to come down to. And I don't know how many of these teams are thinking about pushing the season to the spring or just abolishing the whole season. But you got to remember, there's a lot of seniors across the country yeah. that are sitting there crossing their fingers that they're going to be able to play this year because they may not be back. You know, they may be they may say, you know what, I'm never going to play in the National Football League. And, you know, I'm going to get my degree um, in this in the fall semester here. Why am I going to sit around and do, you know, plus some of these guys have to pay for first things. There's a lot of stuff that goes into this decision, and I think that's why it's so difficult, and that's why, you know, things are getting kind of – there's quiet right now. There's, all this stuff is being brought to the table and being talked about. They're complicated issues, and, totally. and there's layers upon layers upon layers of issues. That but one thing that we are happy about out. is that we, there is some sort of progress that the, the NFL is making, you know, and so – I mean, things have calmed down a little bit. You've got all these players that have reported for camp. and Very low positive test rate. Yep. And I think that, you know, when we touched on this a few weeks ago about the responsibilities of a college football player and a professional player, um, we know the differences, right? I mean, mm -hmm. obviously, a little, they're older. Um, some of them are more responsible and they're getting paid. This is a job. Well, they aren't living on top of each other in dorms, all yep. those things. Yeah. So I think that um, – and, and really, when you – talk about who's going to be successful in 2020 National Football League, it's going to be the team that is the most disciplined and the guys that stay healthy. Those are the yep. teams that are going to win. 
All right, Jeff, before we get to um, Rick and Tampa, we open up the phones at 201-939-4513. Just on the behalf of the show, everybody that's on it, and Jeff, I'll let you say your piece as well. Just wanted to send our condolences out to the Tisch family. Obviously, you know, uh, owners of the team, a really great family on their loss. uh, That was, you know, that we found out about today. So just wanted to send our condolences to the family and uh, our thoughts and prayers with them. 100%. I echo everything you said, John. Great, great family. Um, and, uh, listen, you know, they'll, they'll pull through it and, uh, you know, yeah, absolutely just our best wishes to them. 2020 man. So what a, <laughs> I know. It's Unbelievable. The head year. All right. Let's get the to the phones. That, the year that just it won't go away. Right. <laughs> it's just not going to go away. Still got five months to go. my friend. <laughs> I mean, come on. Let, let's get to 2021 already, please. All right. Let's go to Rip and, Rick in Tampa. He's on the line here on big blue kickoff live. Rick, what's going on, man? How are you? Hey, guys. What's up, Rick? How are you today? We're good, good Rick. Hey, How are Rick, you, man? I, well, I'm doing great down here. First, yeah, my thoughts and prayers out for, to the Tish family. It's uh, a difficult thing, and uh, we're praying for them down here. Uh, all giant blue nation is as well for them. Um, uh, FCC is ready to go down here, bro. I tell you that much. There's going to be a conference play, and I believe they're playing down here. Well, so, and Rick, uh, by the way, it sounds like the SEC and the ACC are both ready to roll. Oh, yeah. They're ready to roll. We're ready to roll. NFL's ready to roll. And uh, I'm looking forward to this. My first call this season, it's hard to believe. I'm usually calling throughout the whole training camp and everything. And now we're in August already. And <laughs> I, I, I kind of I, I switched up my thought process here real quick. I, I do want to ask about Ryan Connolly. Uh, how's his status? Is he going to be ready to go? Because he's such a promising season last season until he got hurt. So if you could uh, uh, give me a little yeah, Rick, real real quick, um, the Giants have been the coaches have been quite specific, and Joe Judge specifically with the players to not talk about injuries. But the fact that Ryan Connolly was not put on the PUP list tells me that he should be ready to go. Hundred percent. Okay. Good. Yeah. All right. right, Good. Good. I'm looking forward for a great season for him. And uh, uh, two things: one, uh, the, the way the timeline is going, we're scheduled to have the first game. Was it September? Is that when the first game mm-hmm. is? Is that on the schedule? Yeah, it's always right, so it's always the first Sunday or the first week after Labor Day. So Labor Day's later okay, this good. year. I think Labor Day's like the eighth or something like that, or the seventh or something like that. Right. So that that's why the right. first week isn't until like the you know the, the first game's the tenth or eleventh, okay. something like that. Which is actually less than a month away of real football. So I'm just like psyched, <laughs> and I believe they'll still go through with it. Everything, I mean, everything's selling down a teeny bit down here at least, and everywhere. Hopefully, this so. Oh, I know they're going to get it off, and I'm looking forward to that. But this preseason thing, uh, not one game at all. I mean, do you is that going to present? I know you asked a couple of the coaches about that. I mean, and I see it being a one little problem is not having one game at least to get those kinks and crinks out, uh, what do you see that that effect having on the first two or three games? Is it going to be, obviously, injuries, more penalties, uh, sloppy play, all the above? <laughs> uh, and I, I think that they needed something, uh, at least one game. And, and how are the teams going to do that, you think? How are the Giants, to be more specific? Uh, who are they going to play within each, uh, themselves? The practice team only? Mm-hmm. Is that it? And um, – is that uh, what's your thoughts on that with the preseason? Thank you, Rick. Pre- thank you, Rick. Appreciate the call, Jeff. Uh, you are well, the former player, so I will. Well, yield listen, the floor I, I to think. You. Oh, thank you, John. I, listen, I, in this environment, I don't think you know. Normally, um, teams would love to bring in another team and practice against them, but you know that's not going to happen. Um, so the answer to your question is, it's going to be uh, the team 
they're going to have inter-squad scrimmages and they're going to be able to they got to have some sort of evaluation you just can't just go out there and run plays and not play football you got to have some competition i know jeff for the fans that don't understand what's the difference between just a practice session and a scrimmage Well, practice session is, you know, you're, you come out on the field and you run around, you stretch, and then you go through individual drills, which are like fundamentals and working on certain stuff. And then you go into situational football where seven on seven, there's the seven offensive guys versus the seven defensive of guys, you know, and they just do coverage and there's no tackling. It's all scripted. Um, then you have nine on seven plays, which you have nine on offense and, uh, excuse me, seven on offense and nine on defense i believe that's what it is well, either one but the fact is that there you know there's no real tackling involved in it um and then once you go to there you go into a team period where the offense runs plays against the defense again it's not it's live but it's not tackling it's not real kind of football so when you bring an inner squad scrimmage in john you know you go and you do those warm-ups and you do things before you get into a scrimmage situation, and then it turns live. Now, you're not going to tackle live, though, right? It's thud, okay. meaning that they will hit the guys, okay, but you cannot bring the guys to the ground. There's no wrapping up mm-hmm. knees, you know, but you're, you know, it's not like it used to be. Yeah, because the whole key is you don't want guys hitting the ground because that's when guys get no one on the ground and, and guys get hurt. That's right. Now, folks, if you ever went to practice back when Tom Coffin was here, that's when you always heard, stay off the ground, stay, stay off up, the ground. stay up, that's right. stay up. That's yep. all you would hear, all practice. And it's funny because, you know, as much as you try to stay off the ground, you can't do it all the time. So when no. one, one guy goes on the ground, the other coaches flip out. Um, but the, <laughs> the thing, the, the, the immediate thud is meaning if you're an offensive lineman going against a defensive lineman, your first two steps off the ball are full speed. Okay. They're full speed because you've got to use your technique there. You know, if you're going to get out and pull, if you're a guard, you're going to get out and pull to the right side. If you're a left guard on a pull on a play, you know, you got to get out and you got to, you got to execute that play and you can only do it at full speed. It's the tackling was where things get a little bit hairy. Now, so the defense usually dictates a lot of that more than the offense. Yeah, the other part of it too, Jeff, right, is that you have to worry about getting your play in. There's a play clock. There's timing. Right. There's down right. distances. And you kind of mm-hmm. have to fly by the seat of your pants a little bit because you're yep. running a series of plays. It's not all scripted like you would have in a regular practice. 100%. Yep. And, you know, they, they work on that. And, and they are at a disadvantage because they have not been able to, to put in their pregame operation and their in-game operation with mm-hmm. the headsets and things like that. But they will. And, John, you know this. Do you see the coaches with their walkie-talkies? And, they're, and they're, they're saying the plays to the guys with the green dots on their helmets, and they're you know executing that. But um, it is a little bit different when you get in a game atmosphere. And if you have some practice at it, it gets a little bit easier. Think about this. Think about some of those young rookie guys uh, at the middle linebacker position that have a, a green dot, which means they have a – a speaker in their helmet, and yeah, they're hearing the coaches. That's, yeah. it, that's a lot. That's a distraction. Yeah, exactly. You know? And, you know, you have T.J. Brunson, who's a young linebacker that could be doing that. Tate Crowder, a young linebacker that could be mm-hmm. doing it. So it's stuff that you got to get used to. Yep, yep. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you one other thing, then real quickly, that you have to get used to is that's going to be playing with no fans. Right, that's <laughs> I right. mean, that's strange. That's going to be really, really different. Yeah, we'll it see really if they will. pump crowd noise or however they end up doing that. Anyway, uh, final call of the show, and then we're going to do our big Daniel Jones sure. year two preview. Scott, New Mexico. Scott, what's up? Hi, Scotty. Hey, guys. How you doing today? What's up, buddy? Good. Uh, Jeff, just to factualize something, uh, condition, the heart condition is myocarditis. myocarditis. Yeah. You know me with names. I wasn't going to even attempt that name, but that's what that is. Yeah. That's exactly uh, what they're saying. I know what it's about because I suffer from an AFib problem, so that's mm-hmm. why it's kind of serious for a lot sure. of college yeah. kids. And they're worried about, they're worried about you know, these guys being put it back on the field after they have cleared protocol 
and that the long-term effect is that name. And next thing you know, they've got a heart problem and, they've, and, they, right. and there's an injury. I mean, there are exactly. Uh, I just have one question, guys. Uh, I was listening to Patrick Graham uh, interview, and there are natural pass rushers like Avon Miller or Khalil Mack that have averaged 10 or 12 sacks a year. And then last year, Shaquille Barrett, I think, was a, was a leader in sacks. Chandler Jones, another guy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. My question is this. Uh, Shaquille Barrett, when he played for Denver and then transferred to Tampa Bay, he wasn't really overloading anybody with sacks his first couple of years, but he switched positions. He went from, I think, a left outside linebacker to right outside linebacker. My question is this. Can any of the Giants, if they adapt and switch positions, in other words, if they switch from one side to another, can they improve their career uh, sack positions? And and that was the question I had. And does Patrick Graham think that's a possibility to actually move people around so that maybe they're more efficient at, at what they do. And I'll take the questions off the air. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate the call. You know, when it comes to Barrett, Jeff, if you actually look at his pressure rate in Denver, it was always actually very good. He was one of those guys that PFF would always label as, oh, this guy could be a really good pass rusher. He just got more snaps. Remember, he was stuck behind Von Miller and Demarcus Ware. Then he was stuck behind Von Miller and Bradley Chubb. So he was kind of stuck behind those guys a little bit, and now he finally got a chance. I don't, I'm don't. i not going to say it was the position switch. I can't imagine going from the left to the right side would have that big of a difference. And I think his sack total was probably a little inflated last year, and he probably was the beneficiary of a little bit of luck. But to me, I don't think a position change left to right would, would really make that big of a difference. Yeah, who knows? It, it could. Maybe it couldn't. But I, I feel like you know this. you have to practice it. It is a little bit different, like a left and a right tackle. You know, your footwork coming off the the ball is different. Mm-hmm. Which hand is down in the dirt is different. Um, but you know what happens? It sometimes maybe players all of a sudden go to another position and actually say, "I like this so much better because whatever." You know, I mean, yeah. I can see better. I'm I'm left eye dominant. You know, maybe with my hand in the dirt, looking down the line of scrimmage. There's just certain things that could happen that could improve your performance. Who knows? All right, let's get into the Daniel Jones kind of recap of 2019. And we kind of use this, Jeff. The reason I wanted to do this is to kind of track him this year now and see what we should pay attention to to see where he needs to get better and improve. Now, some of the stuff we've already talked about in different segments on the show, so that stuff will kind of go past a little bit quickly. Other stuff will go a little bit more in-depth in. I have a million numbers here. I don't want to give you all of them because I'll overload you. Yeah, that stat sheet you gave me Uh, was... No, it's... It's something. So we're going to try to give you the large themes here without overloading you with numbers and just kind of try to explain the whys, why it's important, and those sorts of things. And, Jeff, one thing that we had talked about previously on the show, this will be one of those we go through quickly, is the first thing I looked at was play-action pass with Daniel Jones. And I kind of broke down what he did, type of throw, situation, you know, type of drop back, and all those sorts of things. So we're going to start play-action passing, and he was actually a pretty good play-action pass passer last year, but the difference between his ability and shotgun versus under center was Stark. In shotgun, he had a quarterback rating of 155, under center of just 58. Mm -hmm. Now, we kind of talked about this prior, and he only had play-action passes under center in college with no RPO action 63 times in three years. So something he wasn't asked to do a lot. And that can be an adjustment for a young quarterback because when you're doing play action from under center, you're turning your back to the defense. You have to get your head back around, quickly decode what happened while your back was turned and make a decision. And for Daniel Jones, who hadn't done it a whole lot, that's something that he struggled with as a rookie. 
Well, because he didn't do a lot of it at college. Yeah. So I feel like, you know, we're talking about in the, in the segue and into his second year and what he can learn and how he can get better. I think it's only going to get better for him with that because no, more importantly, he was learning how to do it because he hadn't done it taken from under center now. Um, the other thing is, yeah, you do take your eyes off of the defense a little bit. But, you know, over time, I feel like you can kind of adapt more to the situation by by reps and getting used to it. Now, what kind of a – if you look at Dallas and you look at kind of the offense that they play, they play a lot – they do a lot of play action, okay? So this is something that he's going to have to get better at. And whether, whether it will be out of shotgun or, or from underneath, I don't know. But, again, it all comes back to John, and you broke it down pretty good. But, you know, whatever you do well, let's do it even better. Well, and that's the thing. Like, if you run play action for him on the sh- out of shotgun, guys, he's top really good. rated passer in the league in terms of running play action at a shotgun. So he was fantastic. He was great in yards per attempt, number one in the league. 16 yards per attempt, play action at a shotgun. The ball got out quickly, average depth of target. All those things were just, you know, off the charts for him. So if the Giants can try to focus on some of that stuff, and, you know, Saquon Barkley ran out of shotgun a ton at Penn State. It's not like he's not used to doing that. Mm-hmm. Now, Paul DeTino might have a heart attack running out of shotgun all the time, but it's something that both Saquon Barkley has been good at in the past, and, and Daniel Jones was certainly excellent at um, in year number one. Yeah, and I, I think that in, in, if, if it's me, I've got to learn to be better out of under center and play action because I, I want to set it up. Yeah, you know, I agree. If, if, so, you know, if you're going to run the football, like we talked a little bit about this at the beginning of the show and how the Giants are going to probably really uh, depend on that running game. When you look at what they're doing with the offensive line and with Saquon, okay? So if you are don't have the ability to go under center and hand the ball off because you're just not good at play action – then, then I t- then you're not going to be very good at running the. I, you know what I'm saying? I like I want to be able to present a problem sure. where that play action really works because if I'm under center and I do fake the handoff, um, and I do our running game is so well from under center that I'm gonna there's the element of surprise there and the play action will work. That's why I want him to do it better. Yeah, and play action should create some easy completions too because you know you're putting the defense in a bind, you're moving guys around, so yeah. you can create some big plays down the field too. So if Daniel Jones can improve with his play action under center, it'll make his overall numbers and one you know, other much, thing, much John, better. Mm-hmm. You know, from from under center, you can run some RPOs from under center. Not everything yeah, is done sure out can. of shotgun. Mm-hmm. So it just what it does is it further improves your selection of plays by being able to be successful going underneath or from shotgun. If you're not good at one and better at the other, the team is going to pick that up. So you want to be very you want to be consistent at both things that you do there. No question about it. By the way, RPOs last year, Daniel Jones completed 19 of 23 passes. Mm. A lot of short stuff, only 111 yards, but he was very efficient. Uh, running the RPOs, which is not a surprise given how much he did that well, um, in college. I, and it's funny, I don't, you know, when you look at that play and the design of the RPO, um, you know, it's not really designed for a big play. It's, it can become a big play, maybe from a running perspective, if the quarterback sees something there where he can have the rest of the field to just take, tuck it down and run. But maybe because, you know, you think about Jason Garrett and how he likes to throw the football down the field. Maybe we get some big plays out of that RPO this year. Yeah, maybe. You know, maybe you get some downfield threat out of an RPO situation. Now, one really interesting part of Daniel Jones's game this year, Jeff, and it took a lot of analysis for me to kind of come up with what all these numbers meant, but Daniel Jones last year as a rookie was excellent against pressure. In fact, he rated better. And I'm not talking about overall numbers, because quarterbacks' numbers are never going to be better under pressure than when he's not under pressure. But if in terms of where he ranks among NFL quarterbacks, Daniel Jones was actually ranked higher 
with his statistics under pressure than he was not under pressure. So it's a very impressive thing for a rookie quarterback. And when you kind of break down everything he did, you know, he got rid of the ball quicker under pressure. Um, he the only guys ranked above him were a lot of veterans like kind of the Drew Breeses, the Matt Ryan's, the 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 Tom Brady's. But there were some things where maybe he could buy a little bit more time because you know some of the guys that held the ball the longest while under pressure were the guys that were more mobile, right? The Deshaun Watsons, the Patrick Mahomes, guys that can run around a little bit. And I think one of the strengths of Daniel Jones's game under pressure is that he's willing to stand in the pocket deliver the ball and take a hit, which is something Eli Manning did so much of earlier in his career. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you're willing to stand in the pocket, wait, wait, try to make a play, you risk getting the ball stripped from behind, right? You risk getting hit as you throw it. So I think while this is a great base, and I think for a rookie it's important to start here and then adjust from here, because I think so many rookies sometimes, Jeff, can be skittish in the pocket under pressure. They panic. They throw it away. They don't know how to handle it. The fact that Jones is willing to stay in there, face pressure, make throws in the face of pressure from the pocket, it's okay to dial that back, and it's a lot easier to dial that back than to convince a guy to hang in there. So (laughs) I think you know maybe he can feel the pressure a little bit better, get rid of it, you know, or, or avoid pressure to extend the play a little bit better. But overall, it's a great starting point for him as a rookie when he faces pressure. And if you list, if you kind of read some of the tea leaves here, when when Daniel Jones has been interviewed this off season about how great he looks and he put on a little bit of weight and he did, these are all things that he said himself to help him be able to stay in the pocket. You know, he said he put on eight to ten pounds of muscle, uh, and that's going to help him in the pocket as far as getting hit uh, strength being able to hold on to the football, being able to absorb a hit um, with just a little bit more power and strength so that you can hold on to that football and maybe be able to take a guy that's going to pop you one time. And, you know, where last year you might have taken that pop and dropped the ball, where this time being stronger and more physical presence in the pocket will help you. And so obviously this is something that he looked at and said, hey, this is part of my game that I need to improve on. And by the way, if I can do it physically, getting a little bit stronger and bigger, that'll go a long ways for me too. And he wasn't impacted by the blitz much either, to be quite honest well, with really you. He really good at that. Yeah, he, yeah. He, he handled it well. He maybe held the ball a little bit too long against some blitz. He turned but, it over you know, a little bit too much. Young. Yep. That's just yep. that's just a young guy thing, though. And then when the yep. processing gets faster, and we're going to touch on that a little bit in the next segment, Jeff, you know, he'll be better against the blitz, but he had a lot of big-time throws against the blitz. And if you look at his stats under pressure, and I talked about it in terms of the rest of the league, just to give a general idea, he was probably around under pressure – he was ranked, where's the number here, around 15th of 41 quarterbacks in pro football focus grade, 13th in completion percentage, 19th in quarterback rating. So he's in the top, you know, half, third of the league, depending on what stat you want to look at there. Mm -hmm. But if you look at guys in their first and second year, he's top three in the NFL in nearly all those statistics when it comes to dealing with pressure. So he's way ahead of the game as a young quarterback. But if I believe, and I read it right, it was in your report or even another one, wasn't he the number one quarterback, pressured quarterback in the National Football League last year? No, it it wasn't that bad. It wasn't? It wasn't that bad, no. Interesting. I thought he he got, well, we know he did get pressured a lot. Here's the other thing about him. Um, and you heard it with Jason Garrett. You know, he's, he loves ball. The guy loves to mm-hmm. study. He loves football. He's a smart guy, obviously, going to Duke. Um, he is only going to get better at understanding when there's going to be pressure. 
and knowing, knowing where his outlets are, right? I mean, yep. he's going to be able to understand this is my check down when I see this. When I see them go from this cover to this cover, I know that this is my only play. He's going to get much better at that as you go. And Jason Garrett, and, uh, you know, you've got to talk about Jerry Shaplensky too. He's the new uh, quarterback coach who came from New England, which, by the way, you remember who the quarterback was up there that he worked under, right? So I think that there's going to be a lot of good coaching going on in that quarterback room, not to mention some of the veterans that are in that quarterback room. All right, average time to throw, Jeff. And I took a look at this, and we talked about it. He actually got rid of the ball pretty quickly when he was under pressure. He was top 15 in the league. So when he saw pressure, he did a good job of getting rid of the ball, which is important. But I thought a telling stat, if you looked at the amount of time it took Daniel Jones to throw the ball on plays, and this, this is how I kind of filtered it, and Pro Football Focus, by the way, thank you very much to them for giving me access to all these numbers to, to allow me to do this. I was able to just look at his plays where there was no pressure, no RPO, and no play action, right? So just straight drop back, no pressure. He was 34th of 35 qualifying quarterbacks in terms of average time to throw, which means only one quarterback held the ball longer than he did when he dropped back, and if you look at just plays where he was in the pocket, he had the longest time to throw of any quarterback in the league. And again, for a rookie quarterback, not a surprise. It's going to take you longer to figure out where you want to go with the ball, right? But I think it goes back to a lot of the issues that he had. And, you know, you take a look at some of these numbers, and Pro Football Focus breaks down very well in terms of, um, you know, sacks and when they occur. So average time to a pass attempt for him overall was 2.7 seconds, 32nd in the NFL. So a long time to throw the ball. Um, no, percent of dropbacks greater than two and a half seconds, tied for 13th most in the NFL. Sacks incurred on dropbacks greater than two and a half seconds, ninth most in the NFL. With that said, his average time to a sack of 3.1 seconds was the seventh fastest in the NFL. So I think it's hard to kind of put all these things together, but these were kind of my conclusions, Jeff, that Jones does hold the ball longer than most quarterbacks. And we'll get to this in a second. When he holds the ball longer, he does not play as well. Um, when he does face pressure, he gets sacked quicker than most of the quarterbacks in the league. So he does face pressure quicker than a lot of other quarterbacks. When he stands in the pocket, he can deliver the ball well. Generally speaking, you know, he's somebody that needs to get rid of the ball quicker because when he holds it longer, there are more sacks, more chances at turnovers. He plays poorer, has more turnover-worthy plays. So I think a big key for Jones this year is to get rid of the ball quicker because just he plays so much better when it's out fast, and when he holds it and he holds it, bad things tend to happen, whether it's a sack, an interception. All his passing numbers go down. I can give you the numbers. I think they're boring. Just trust me. They go way down when he holds the ball more than two and a half seconds. I'll just give it to you real quick, just so the fans get a basic idea of it. Mm -hmm. So when he holds it more than two and a half seconds, um, he led the NFL with 22 turnover were these plays when he holds the ball um for more than two and a half seconds his overall pro football focus drops from 19th when he holds it for less than two and a half to 35th of 43 quarterbacks when he holds it more than two and a half seconds so everything drops when he holds the ball jeff and bad things tend to happen <laughs> well yeah and, and i think going forward i think um just understanding remember he's going to be learning a new offense so i think that you know he may be up against 
some of this early on because you know you got to if you've been running an offense for two three four five 15 years something like that you know you're going to understand that this is just the way it's going to work on this type of a play but i think that the evolution of of the game and him understanding how the how fast this, the game is, is played at this level um, he's going to get better at it. But I also believe that going into a game and when you're dissecting a lot of the stuff that he needs to work on, which is what the coaches do in the offseason, they say, hey, Dan, you know, these are the things we're going to concentrate on now going forward. Um, when you get in a situation like this, what's the first thing you're going to do? Right. And they'll tell them, you know, either throw the ball away, okay, or maybe slide just to try to avoid some pressure. But you need to get the football away because you know what? You're putting you're in harm's way. You really are. Yeah. And now – we, we all know that an improved offensive line will help the time and, and, the, and how things are going in the pocket. So hopefully that'll be a little bit of a, a bonus for him too. No question about it. And then if you look at the number of steps on drops, it, it kind of mimics the time to throw, right? Well, sure. He was one of the best quarterbacks in the league on three-step drops, fourth in the league in quarterback rating, fourth in the league in yards per attempt. Um, when he got to five-step drops, why? he was, he was yeah. kind of in the middle of the league. Then when he gets to seven-step drops, he turned into one of the worst quarterbacks in the league. So as he took longer drops and held the ball and held the ball and held the ball, you know, the play deteriorated. And on those plays where he had seven-step drop, seven drops, Jeff, or held it for more than, you know, three seconds, yeah, plays no like that, you yeah. know, he made mistakes, but he also made big plays. On seven-step drops, for example— he had uh, the 10th most big-time throws according to Pro Football Focus. So he's always trying to do a little bit too much, right? Like he, the, And you like this about a quarterback because, it's, again, it's easier to dial somebody back than to dial them up where he, he's always trying to make that play and that forces him to hold the ball, tries him to make him squeeze the ball in some places. And sometimes it's okay to check it down. It's okay to get rid of the ball quicker. It, it, it's okay to throw it away and punt. And I think Jones, when, you know, these big plays come in, he's holding it and holding it. Sometimes it's better to just, you know, take the easy play, you know, throw it away, do what you got to do, and, and kind of just move on and not try to do too much, which is what <laughs> happens when he when he tries to do these big seven-step drops or, or hold the ball too long. Well, I can tell you from just understanding that when you do that something for a long time and then you're trying to correct it or just improve in it, it's, it takes a lot, of, a lot of reputation, a lot of um, reps to get – back to being comfortable with what they're trying to teach you. And what I'm saying is, is that when you've been doing something for so long um, and you've had a, you've been throwing at a level like Daniel Jones did in college where he was a pretty good quarterback, um, then all of a sudden you get to the pros and Pat Shermer last year is telling you that you need to do this. It's very uncomfortable. So you have to start learning. It's just you have to have like 5,000, 10,000 reps yep. until it becomes really just kind of a, like you're walking in your sleep. I mean, it's easy, you know, so – that's going to come with practice. Unfortunately, they haven't had a lot of that. So I feel like I feel like we might see a little bit of this early in the season, John. Um, but you know what? We're going to be able to go back and look at it and say, hey, you know, we talked about this when you when we talked about five step and seven step drops. Um, I believe that an improved offensive line on a seven-step drop will help him tremendously because he does have a big arm and he does have a propensity to make big plays from that seven-step drop. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited about Jason Garrett offense throwing the ball down the field to Adarius Slayton as long as he can get protection in that seven-man drop. 
And we've talked about this or before. Or seven step drops, excuse me. No question. And we talked about this before, Jeff. Better against man than zone, which makes sense. Against man, you kind of identify what's there. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you pick out your mismatch, you go attack it. He was good at that. He was in the top half of the league in terms of a lot of the major stats, PFF grade, you know, quarterback rating, completion percentage against man. Against zone, he was in the bottom quartile. And this goes back to something else, Jeff, which is processing time, right? When you're watching that zone... And, you know, guys can move around. You're trying to figure out exactly what's happening. But a lot, like with a lot of things you're talking about, that's just going to improve the more and more you see opposing defenses, the faster you're going to be able to process and the better he's going to handle some of these more complicated zone defenses. Yeah, and, you know, the thing with zone is they disguise them. And, um, you know, there's, you, that you see how these interceptions happen where all of a sudden yep. you're just like, where did that come from? Uh, well, that, that's just a good play by the defense. Um, and it's just... You know, a lot of times these quarterbacks are staring down their receivers. Young guys do, and they're not looking out for that linebacker um, who's in the throwing lane and just he, all of a sudden he just steps there, and it's like, oh, man, there's a pick. And sometimes that picks, that's pick six, you know. So I think that the zone defense causes you a little bit more problems than the man because you understand there's a guy on a guy, and you're going to pick out the weaker uh, the weaker matchup and go with that one. Yeah, and the numbers also say Jeff he's a very aggressive quarterback. And well, you know, I like that. Yeah, so I like that. and I think this again, you'd rather start there and dial somebody back, right? Than have to push them into being more aggressive. And you know, it's not necessarily the necessarily the throwing down the field part because I think you know you look at some of the numbers, he could probably go to throw down the field a little bit more. He's in the, like the 50th percentile or so in terms of number of passes down the field. But where the aggressiveness really shows up, Jeff is that he had the 16th most throws in the NFL into tight coverage, and he had the third most passes that resulted in contested catches between the wide receiver and the cornerback. So I think sometimes, and I talked about being over-aggressive, right? There's no point in trying to squeeze in like a six-yard pass between three defenders because the benefit doesn't outweigh the risk. The risk of that getting deflected or intercepted is is too much to risk for a minimal game. So I think Jones has to maybe do a little bit of a better job figuring out which one of these risks and tight windows are worth throwing into. You know what I mean? And, and it's what we talked about a little bit earlier is, you know, decision-making. Um, you know, Jason Garrett telling him, listen, we're, this is going to be a tight throw, all right, but we can't afford a turnover here. So in this situation, I know it's processing, but if you get in a situation where you're going to need to make a tight throw, I still want you to be aggressive, but you mm-hmm. also got to understand where we are in the juncture of the game. Yep. Okay, so early on in the game, if you want to take that chance, you know, that's fine. But late in the game, when we're up a t- down a touchdown or up a touchdown, whatever it is, where it's a tight game, I-, I need you to throw that ball and we'll just live for another play. You know, and that just takes pro- – that's just practice. That's just experience. You know, Eli was so good at that. Uh, just taking a look at something and he didn't like it, he'd either check out of the play, okay, or he knew, or w- when it was happening, he just threw it away. Threw it away, buys the time, threw it in the dark. You know, how many times do you see him throw things at people's feet? <laughs> you know, that's one of those things where he's, it's just not going to work and he's just going to throw it away. Yeah, and he did have a, a lot of first down and first quarter turnovers which you really don't want to see because those are the points of the game where it's early. Well, especially first 12 of his oh. 21, um, I believe, interceptions or dropped interceptions came in the first half on either first or second down. Yeah. So and, that's too many. And, and it's funny because, you know, mostly those are, those are running downs, right? So when, right. You're, when you're throwing interceptions on those types of plays on first and second down, that goes back to me is like, okay, listen, let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. Why are we making this mistake? 
Um, and that's what you do. John, I can't tell you how many times, you know, after a game, you go into your meetings and you're probably wondering, people are like, what do you guys watch? Well, we're not only, we've already know who won the game, but we're just watching ourselves and we're, we're doing situational stuff. You know, why did you do this on this down? Or why, when, when you were the backed up punting wise, I'm talking about this, there, there's why, you're asking the question, why? And, and then how do I improve on it? So then you go and work on it. Okay, you get in situations in practice where you put yourself in those situations. You know, mm -hmm. I, a minute and a half left in the game, I'm in the back of the end zone. What am I thinking about? We're up by two points. What am I supposed to do here? Rather than just kick it, catch it and kick it, you gotta you gotta get a good kick. You gotta eliminate a return. Then you're gonna put your defense on there to win the game. You know, so there's there's types of things you. And this is why football is such a complicated game, and it takes a lot. That's why you only play them once a week. You know, yeah, and look, and folks, we're gonna go long today. I want to make sure we get through this full rundown with Jeff here, and then we'll post it all up uh, later on on YouTube as well. If you want to go, you know, check out the different parts of the show. I took a look at his deep ball stats, Jeff, which were interesting. Overall, his deep ball stats were fine, but it was the splits that were really interesting. When he was throwing deep between the numbers, so kind of towards the middle of the field, he was nine of fifteen for two hundred eighty yards, four touchdowns, no interceptions, one hundred and forty-one quarterback rating. Outside the numbers, he was just 7-39 of 39 for 218 yards, five touchdowns, and four picks. Looking at the tape, early in the year, he had a lot of overthrows, kind of over the head and towards the sideline. Later in the year, in some of the bad weather, we saw some underthrows, I thought. I thought he was better on the passes where, you know, you kind of throw more of a line drive. It was either a jump ball or a back shoulder. He had some issue finding the right touch on some of those kind of really kind of loopy over-the-top type of throws. But if he can convert some of that deep middle accuracy to that deep outside accuracy, he has the chance to be one of the elite deep ball throwers in the league. Well, and look at who is – we have a healthy target down the middle of the field. You know who that is. That's Evan Ingram. If he can get that ball to him and dip some of these big plays like that, I agree with you 100%. The ones the outside of the numbers, um, that has a lot to do with footwork. And, uh, and it's not arm strength. It's footwork. It's technique and fundamentals. Because, you know, I know that from – just watching quarterbacks and the way that they throw the football and listening to the coaches, how they talk to them. Um, you have to have a foundation when you're throwing outside the numbers. If you, right. if your footwork is not there, uh, then you rely on your arm, your arm, you, your arm is, they're all strong. I mean, every quarterback in the NFL has a strong arm. A lot of them have stronger than others, but the fact is you have to use your lower body to get the ball to that spot on the field where you're going to throw it. And if you're just using your arm, sometimes it's, you're going to underthrow, and that's what happened. You said you know, most of those were underthrown, and that's, that's the case. Yeah, and then you take a look at the intermediate throws between the 10 and 19 yards. And, Jeff, to me, these are the throws where a quarterback really kind of makes their money, right? These oh, are yeah, the... especially if you have weapons that can you know, make some yak. Right, right, right. and you, got, you have third and seven, third and eight. That's when you need to complete that 12-yard pass. So, you know, he ranked in the bottom quarter, quarter in a lot of the numbers uh, in, in this particular stat line, and a lot of it had to do with the turnovers because you look at the tape, Jeff, he makes some excellent throws with anticipation, especially outside the numbers in this area, mm -hmm. on deep outs, on deep comebacks, where he's throwing the ball before the guy's even getting into his break. And you're like, wow, those are some great throws. Then, I'll give you this number. On 80 throws in this range last year, he had nine turnover-worthy plays. So that is That's pretty more good. than one out of ten throws were a potential turnover. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. Yeah, you know what I mean. I mean, so what I, I mean think, by pretty good, that's a pretty good clip. I mean, that's a lot of that's turnover worthy. Explain that to to the yeah the listeners. Yeah, good, the good idea. Thank you for that. So, Pro Football Focus basically, you know, instead of just looking at turnovers, they look at turnover worthy plays. So, 
a, you know, a pass that hits a receiver in the face, pops up in the air, and gets intercepted is not a turnover-worthy pass. A pass, however, that, say, hits a defender in the face, they drop it, you count that as a turnover-worthy play. So it tries yep. to determine simply based on, on the pass or the play if the play should have been a turnover. Right. So if you're looking at a 10% turnover-worthy throw clip, and remember, this doesn't count fumbles now. These are just throws. Throws on to players that were between 10 and 19 yards. To have an over 10% rate there, that's too high. And that goes back to the point I made before, right, Jeff? You have to pick your spots here. Where yeah. can you squeeze the ball in? Where can't you? And then also just, you know, figure out exactly where the defense is and where you can get the ball safely. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's, and that's you know, again, I think this is just all when we're really breaking all this down to a first-year player. A lot of this stuff comes into it. This will be a very interesting conversation next year Yeah, um, to see how – and it's good that you take the time to break this down in a sense that we can look at it next year and see the comparison. And you're definitely, it's going to be eye-dropping to where the improvement is or maybe the improvement wasn't made yeah. um, by looking at these numbers. And if you look at the short throws, Jeff, he was top 10 in quarterback rating, uh, top 10 in PFF grade. Um, this is in throws from one to nine yards. So he was great in that short range. And again, shorter dropbacks, right? Quicker decisions, get rid of the ball quicker. Shorter passes. They all kind of lines up when you look at it logically. Rhythm. And then in the red zone, he was the 14th highest rated passer in the NFL in the red zone. You know, that's something that quarterbacks struggle with. There's not a lot of space to 100%. operate it with. He was first or he was top he was the top three in first and second year quarterbacks in that area too. So, you know, that's something he excelled at. And I don't know if you have this on, on your report or whatever, the mm -hmm. turnover-worthy plays inside the red zone is an important statistic for me. I don't know if they do that. Oh, I could check that for you. But the fact is is that you know if you were thrown at a 10% clip in the regular open field stuff, wonder what it is when you get into the red zone because you hope that that really declines because that's your, that's your money zone, right? I mean, you want to be scoring touchdowns down there, which, by the way, I think this is a huge goal of this new Giants offense is in the red zone production put some points on the board. They're going to have to, right? Because you figure that their defense is going to be a little bit behind the eight ball this season. Yeah, Jeff, I don't have it in terms of red zone specifically, but I do have it in terms of passes between one and nine yards. On 224 pass attempts, only five turnover-worthy plays. That's, two, that's a good rate. Okay, so there you go. Five okay. on only 224 pass attempts, that's between good. Between one and nine. So if you're Correct. on the 10-yard line, mm -hmm. all right, so that's, a, that's, that's the go zone, right? Yeah, okay. So that, I like to see that. Now, if you told me that, that that thing was 12 or 15. That's a problem. <laughs> then, then we're not putting a lot of balls in the end zone. And I'm, I'm, I'm a little excited about what this offense will look like in the red zone with, the, um, with Jason Garrett and his tight ends. You know how he loves to work those tight ends, as we know. I mean, how many touchdown passes did we see Jason yeah. Witten catch in a in a in a Dallas uniform against the Giants over the years? I mean, it's ridiculous. All right, let's look at third down, Jeff. As you know, that that's a money down. That's mm -hmm. where you kind of make your money. And Daniel Jones was good on third downs. Fifteenth in quarterback rating, eleventh completion percentage. He had the seventh highest beyond the sticks percentage. That means percentage passes that are targeted past the first down marker, which is kind of is a measure of aggressiveness, right? Mm -hmm. So he was high in that. And he was top 10 in most third-down stats, and he was especially good between one and four yards where he was in that top 10 area. Only two turnover-worthy plays on third down and four or less. Now, it got up a little bit when you went between five and 10, and what that's in line with everything we've talked about, right? When it's a third and long, you're going to hold the ball a little longer. Exactly. But he did do well on third and 10+. Plus. And what we're seeing here, Jeff, is that he's able to make a lot of really spectacular plays, and you're like, wow, what a throw. 
But along with those spectacular plays, and we see this on, on third and long with him, you're seeing too many mistakes. So he just needs to be able to limit some of those mistakes and, and those turnover-worthy plays and you know don't reduce some of those great throws. And, and that's kind of the balance. He's the type of strike here because that's what we're seeing on these third and longs. Yeah, and, and that's decision-making um, at its best. You know, those, those are the things you learn as you get better in the league, understanding that in third and long, um, the chances of converting are, are, you know, they're not good. And if you have a shot, take it if you think it's a good one. If not, throw it away, tuck it down, put the punt team on, put your defense on, you know. So, yep. um, and I think that young quarterbacks trying to make a mark in the league, trying to, you know, just get their team to win and, and they're forced into those. Those are rookie mistakes. And they're young. And you know what, and he's going to make them this year too. You know, until you get into those fifth, sixth, seventh years in the league and playing all the time, uh, where the game becomes a little bit more natural to you, you're going to have a propensity to, to try to rush some of those throws and put them in those tight windows where you shouldn't. You know, Jeff, learn. Yeah, and I think it's important, too, that you know Jason Garrett likes to run the ball on early downs, right? So you get into some of those third and shorts because you have Saquon Barkley. He was really good in those spots. So I think keeping yeah. Jones out of those situations will help him, too. 100%. And I think if you, like you said, you rely on that running game to get you in manageable third down positions. And if you're, you know, really good between one and four yards or whatever the number was, um, it also gives you the opportunity again to still run the football there, you know, and, and set yeah. up some play action. Yeah, right. And, and, you and just play because action you can go deep for, for if you want. Yeah. And, you know, and listen, I know that in the quarterback room and in games, um, the quarterbacks and offensive coordinators, they want to take their shots. Right. The game just isn't as fun if you're not going to be able to throw the football down the field. So there's times when you want to take your shots and there's certain situations in that the defense gives you that all of a sudden, a re, you know, just a light bulb goes off and says, hello, this is what we looked at all week. There it is. Uh, and I'll give you one, for example, and it wasn't really even a big shot. But it was a touchdown pass to Plaxico Burris in the, in the Super Bowl. They practiced that play all week. They knew it was going to come sooner or later. And lo and behold, it came on that play. They didn't run it all ye all week. They didn't run it all game. That was the only time they threw it. You know, they knew it was going to go. So, just, but then there's also times when you think you want to take that shot, but you got to understand the situation, the situation of the game, where you are at in the score, and how you're winning or losing dictates that throw. You know, Jeff and I looked at clutch situations too. So basically, two minute drills and close okay. games, fourth quarter. Yep. And we saw the well. same type of thing plague Jones that plagued him on third and longs when he yeah. seven step drops. Because why? He feels like he has to make plays in those situations, right? So yes. I think that the, the common yes. theme we're seeing when he thinks he has to do too much on his own, right. some of the bad habits tend to come to the forefront. John, a little bit. let me tell you, I and this is such a good is a good analogy because I. I have, you know, for so long when I was playing, uh, later when I was, I was on a lot of bad teams. <laughs> yeah, okay, the Cardinals, so, yes. I mean, I was on a lot of bad teams where I felt, I felt like I had to make a big play with my leg and, you know, push the defense back because we just, you know, we're going to lose the game if we're just, every time we give the team the, the ball, they're going to score with a short field. So I would try to do too much for so long until finally I realized that I'm not going to be able to succeed by doing this. I just got to do something really well, and, and that is the directional kicking part of it. So rather than trying to kick the ball five seconds and 70 yards, you know, kick it four and a half seconds and 45 yards and do that well. That's the same thing with quarterbacking. Same thing with running backs. Same thing with everything in football. You try to do something really good and stick with it rather than try to do everything really well. It's never going to work.
<laughs> no question about it. Um, also took a look at accuracy, Jeff. And he's really good, Daniel Jones, at avoiding uncatchable passes. He was in the top half of the league in that. But one area where he can get a lot better, Pro Football Focus does a nice job of, you know, figuring out if a pass is super precisely accurate, just plain accurate. They call it catchable but inaccurate. So it's on the body, but the receiver has to go through a lot of effort to make the play. And then you have inaccurate throws, which are uncatchable, right? So where Daniel Jones, again, he was good at avoiding the uncatchable ones. Um, where he needs to get a little bit better, he was v- ranked very high in the league in terms of inaccurate balls that were catchable. And if you go back, remember I gave you the number so where that he means was, what that means he's open and he should have thrown the ball, but he didn't. No, that means he throws it. The receiver can catch it, but it's not in stride. It's not right to his hands. It's not right in his chest. So the, the receiver might have to jump for it. Okay. He might have to go low to get it and okay. dive for it. Things like that. And I think what we talked about, you know, how he ranked very high in the number of contested catches on passes that he made result in contested catches, mm-hmm. I think it probably comes back to this number a little bit, right? Because if you're not hitting the guy perfectly in stride and it's off the body or a little bit behind him or a little bit high, that gives the defense a chance to make plays on the ball, which also maybe might go towards the turnover plays a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that, and that's something you just have to, again, you need to realize what you're you know, what you're trying to attempt here. Well, I think that's also trying... fundamentals. You talked about the base with the legs and stuff with the outside 100%. throws, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so many times when I know that these quarterbacks go back into the meeting room after a game and they can tell you the, the, the throw that they like the best. They'll tell you that throw on third down or that throw on first down in the second quarter might have been my best throw of the game. Huh. You know, they know it. They're also going to tell you the worst throw of the game. You know, that pick that I threw in the fourth quarter with two minutes left, I should have never done it. These are, these are just experience that you talk about. You, they're growing pains. Um, they're they're – you know, what happens when you have a young quarterback and a young team. Um, and this is just how you improve. And it's a shame that, you know, I get the whole preseason thing because I feel like this is such a young football team. It would have been good to have a nice preseason and get some of these guys some experience. Um, but I under, I get the whole gist of what happened. Um, but it is kind of these guys are going to learn on the run. They're going to learn um, the game of football, the young guys, in, in, a, in you know, with full go. <laughs> it's, it counts. The first game counts now. You don't get four that don't. Yeah, no question about it. All right, Jeff, let's get to the turnovers, and then we'll do conclusions, and we'll wrap up. I know we're long, folks, but we did all the work on this. I want to make sure we get all the information in. I appreciate you sticking with us. Turnover-worthy plays, Jeff. Um, according to Pro Football Focus, Jones had 31 turnover plays in 2019. That was the third most in the NFL. 18 fumbles for Daniel Jones. Now, here's the key here. As all I right. mentioned, Pro Football Focus will categorize plays were they turnover-worthy for Jones? Out of those 18 fumbles, PFF said eight of them were not Jones's fault. I went back. I looked at all the plays. Those were plays where there was either a jailbreak, right, and he had no chance to get rid of the ball on time, and something happened. Um, he was hit as he threw where he's about to deliver the pass. Somebody knocks his hand from behind. I think we had a Shaquille Barrett play like that and a Chandler Jones play like that. And other plays where just a guy gets let loose on the blind side and he has no chance to see him coming and the ball gets knocked out. Um, five of those came from the blind side, and he was hit while he was throwing the ball. So, to me, looking at all those turnovers, Jeff and Paul and I have talked about this a little bit, I'm not so worried about the fumbles. Of those 10 fumbles that are left, two are fumbled snaps, throw those out, whatever. 
Three came on runs where he tried to turn a third and seven into a first down, trying to do too much at the end of the play again, trying to do too much to make a play, right? And one was that backwards pass against Detroit when he tried to throw the swing pass to Saquon. He got hit. So that's kind of a freak play. So you get down to the rest. That's four were plays where he kind of held the ball in the pocket for too long. So if I look at the really nature of all these fumbles, the fumbles to me, Jeff, is not what worries me. I think Jones can fix this. You mentioned his weight training, his strength, get stronger, get rid of the ball quicker. You put all those things together and maybe slide instead of trying to break tackles for first downs when you run the ball. You do some small little things like that, I think these fumble numbers can go way down very quickly. They will, and, and these are all coachable moments, and they'll go through every single one of them. They will go through the, every single one of the turnovers that, that Daniel Jones had in that meeting room, individual meetings. They'll go through them, and they're going to analyze it. And the one thing you do not want to do is take the aggressiveness away from Daniel Jones because mm-hmm. he can make some plays with his feet. So you don't want to scare him into the fact of saying, you know what, listen, you get outside of that pocket and you can run, you want to slide. No, that's not it. I want you to run. I want you to make an effort to make a big play. But when the time comes, let's not try to extend that play that you just did. (laughs) Let's take what you got, put it in your pocket, and you're done, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of a learning experience that goes along with the position. The fumbled snaps, that's technique fundamentals. That's just getting more snaps with the center. I don't know where those came when there was a change in the center Uh, position. Late in the year, it was November and December against the Redskins and Eagles, if I recall. Okay. Well, listen, I, again, remember this. He's still in the learning phase of being able to take that snap under center. Remember that, folks. Just because he's a quarterback and you know you should be able to do it, there's no question. But there's a lot of times where, again, it, it's new. Um, he pulls out of there too soon. He separates his hands underneath the, the center's butt, and sometimes the ball just scoots through his hands. So these are fundamental. These are fixable problems, Yeah. right? They're very fixable. Now, if Daniel Jones comes out of this analysis with 13 fumbled snaps, we got a problem. we got mm-hmm. a Dave Craig problem here, yeah. right? I mean, <laughs> you talk about a guy. I played with Dave Craig, by the way. He was my quarterback in Seattle. He had the smallest hands I've ever seen in my life, and that's why he fumbled so much. That's but interesting. I'm not worried about uh, Daniel Jones because he's got big hands, really big. All right, let's go to the interceptions, and I think this was a bigger issue, Jeff. He had yeah. 12 interceptions and then nine interceptions that were dropped. One, I, you know, PFF gave him nine. I thought one was like kind of a diving attempt by the Vikings. So I think probably eight dropped interceptions is more realistic, but that's still 20, and that's a lot. So you, you take a look at the different types of plays. You know, I talked about when they came in the games, there was really not a common thing. They were spread throughout, but probably a little bit, too many early in the game and on first down. Um, more came in zone than man, which by the nature of the defense shouldn't surprise anybody. Yep. And when you look at it, I think there are a lot of different reasons. There were some interceptions where, to my point earlier, he just wasn't accurate enough. Like, he, for example, remember that crossing pattern against the Redskins early in the year? He threw it behind the receiver. And the Redskins safety jumped the route. There were a couple interceptions where with a single high safety defense, he throws deep down the sideline. The single high safety gets over there. He doesn't move him enough or hold him in the middle of the field long enough. He intercepts the ball or drops an interception. You had other plays against zone where uh, the cornerback reads what he's going to do and jumps the route. Uh, you have other plays where there are a couple plays like the one against New England, one against the Packers, where you know he just makes a bad decision and a bad read. He makes a pass he shouldn't have made. So there are a lot of different reasons here um, for why these interceptions happened. But 
to me, they're plays that with more experience, reading the defense, making better decisions. And, and this kind of comes to the conclusion, Jeff, and I think it's a good transition as we wrap up here. Uh, the word I like to use for Daniel Jones and evaluating his, his rookie season and going into his second year is better risk management. And for the people that do economics, I think you understand where I'm coming from, where you have to pick your spots, right? You can't try to do too much. You have to understand what's a smart decision, what's not. You know, make quicker decisions. Make smarter decisions. Um, yeah, it's great to be fearless in the face of pressure and to stay in the pocket and take a hit. But if you do that too much and hold the ball too long and are oblivious to the pressure, that turns into interceptions. It's great to make a spectacular throw down the field between three guys for a touchdown. But if you get three of those plays, but six interceptions go along with it because you're trying to force things that aren't there— Guess what? That's bad risk management. Yeah. So he needs to figure out a way to reduce his turnovers, reduce his mistakes, but don't take away so many of the great play that goes with it. And I think if he can do those, do that as a real basic way to kind of describe his overall play, just reduce some of the bad plays without redu- reducing as many of the great plays. If he can do that, I think he's going to have a really, really nice career. Because, Jeff, you know this. You can make eight spectacular plays in a game. That's great. But if mm-hmm. you turn it over three times, yeah, nobody fine. cares. It's not going to matter. You're well, going to lose. lose games. You're going to lose the majority of those games. So you've got to balance those two things a little bit better, I think. And, again, I, th- I just feel like you know some good coaching. Um, and what I mean by coaching, folks, when I say I don't mean that Pat Shermer and the staff before were not good coaches. I feel like that – what I'm saying now going forward is that you have Jason Garrett, who, who was a coach that played the position. And I know Mark Colombo played the position, right? So these are guys that are going to be able to teach in a way that the players understand a little bit better. That's all I mean about that. Yeah, okay? Jeff, to your point, I think last year's coaches did a really nice job that he played so well so early. A hundred percent. And my, my point is I think that it's just going to get better. And I feel like, you know, and I said it earlier – you're so ingrained to make plays in football. You want to do well. You want to make plays, the big play, right? I'm not going to have the roaring crowds this year. To, to, you know, to, <laughs> but, but my point is, is that you got to be able to be smart about the football. And you know that turnovers cost you games, just like penalties do too. So we can't afford to go on the road and turn the football over. But I do not, like you said, John, I do not want to take away your aggressiveness. Right. Um, because I feel like... So part of your repertoire, Daniel Jones, is that you do throw the football down the field well. You do have a good chemistry with Darius Slayton. I think that that was something that it, it really, really improved last year. Yeah, you don't want to. You want to try to limit the turnovers to the point that be, that he becomes Alex Smith from 2010, <laughs> where he's just right. throwing six yard passes all game. You don't want That's that. That's right. Yeah, no, we do not want. I don't want to see that, and I'm sure the fans don't want to see it either. And I know that Daniel Jones doesn't want to do it either. You know, because part of being a quarterback is being able to make a big play down the down the field. That just gets you and the team so excited um, <laughs> that it's it's ridiculous, and you'd love to watch them. Yeah. And when they're successful, admit they're big plays, and you know what happens. The team with the big plays, when we go and do these these games, and we kind of break it down, and you look at week in and week out, which teams made the most big plays in the game, they typically win the game. No question about it. And Jeff, I'll, I'll end here, and I think this is to your point. So many of this in terms of making better decisions and making quicker decisions to get the ball out faster, which is another big part of this, just has to do with him seeing defenses more. Remember, he was dropped into this in week three last year. You know, you get dropped in in week three. You know, these college defenses are, you know, basic installations for NFL defenses in like April. 
What these NFL defense are showing on Sundays in October and November, they're complicated. Daniel Jones probably saw some of these things for the first time in games, in games he was playing in. So that takes time to figure out. And one thing Kevin Gilbride always said to me is that the quarterback that's able to see things quickly and slow the game down for themselves are the ones that play the best. Mm -hmm. And we saw improvement at the end of the year. I don't think he took one sack or he held the ball more than two and a half seconds after November 10th where you saw him making quicker decisions because he's seeing it more. And as you see this more frequently, things will slow down. (laughs) His play speed goes up and the game slows down for him. And I think just experience should fix most of these things. Now, is it a guarantee that it's going to? No, there are no guarantees. Jameis Winston still has turnover issues. But that doesn't mean that that's going to be the case for Daniel Jones. So I think just experience here and seeing these things and the experience that he had in his first year will help reduce some of these issues. And I think the amount of high-level play we saw and a good amount of it in his rookie year tells me that elite play is there. Now, you're going to have to finesse things and improve in things and improve on the margin and do things better to get that elite play more consistently and remove the bad play that's going to make you lose football games, but it's in him. And I'd much rather have a guy where I know it's in him and I just got to figure out how to get to it most consistently than a guy where you have to coax that play out of them. And I think, for me, that's why they're at a good place with Jones. Will he get there? Who knows? We'll see. But it, I think it's there. They just had to figure out a way to unleash it. Well said. I, th- I think that um, they will work towards those goals. And I think it's, 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 you know, it's, not a, it's, uh, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon, right? It's going <laughs> to eventually it's gonna take time to get this through. But This is about I, a 15-year player, Jeff, not a three-, four-year career. That's right. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know, as you move forward in your progression, and I mean by progression in the years you're playing in this league, um, there is something to be said about the game. It, do, it does slow down. It really does. At the beginning, it's fast. The other thing to look at is at the beginning of the season, nobody really knew Daniel Jones either. So they didn't know how to play him all that well. So, you know, he came out and played pretty well at the beginning, and then all of a sudden teams started to figure. And that's with any player, right? Of because course. these coaches are very, very, very good. Well, and now it's Jones's turn to adjust back to them. 100%, and I think he will. And I think when you go with Jason Garrett and, and Jerry Chaplinski, his coach, and, you know, that offensive staff, they're going to put him in good positions to succeed. Um, and it's also you're going to have to see what kind of talent around you because if you don't have talent around you, you're not going to be very successful. Mm-hmm. I feel like the receiving cores, if they can stay healthy, they can spread the ball around to those guys pretty good. When we talk about how many catches all those guys are going to get, I think it's going to be fairly close to, you know, no one's going to run away with it. It's going to be really close. You know, it's funny, Jeff, and I'll wrap here. You know, a lot of the stuff that's supposed to be easier for quarterbacks, like play action under center. Um, throwing with no pressure, right? And performing with nobody in your face. And first down passing. That's the stuff that's supposed to be easier for quarterbacks, right? Yeah. And that's yeah. some of the stuff that Jones struggled at. But then you have the tough stuff, like red zone passing and third down passing and passing under pressure. And Jones well, is really good at those things. You know what that so tells it's, me? It's, what, is it, what does it tell you? You tell it, me. It, I'll tell you exactly what it tells me. So it, it's just like anything, right? So when things come real easy to you, sometimes you get a little bit lackadaisical. Oh, this is, this is easy, first down. But when things get tight and things get really tough, there's the guys that persevere and they concentrate more. So what happens is he needs to concentrate more on those easy plays that you're talking about on first down, some of the easier throws. Uh, you need to have that type of concentration the same as you would on a fourth and one in the red zone to win the game. Those are the kinds of things you learn as a player. You really do as you go forward. 
And it all comes with experience, and the more he plays, the better he's going to get. Jeff, I know we went really long. I hope I no didn't worries. kill you on your schedule. I no, had a lot I'm, of fun, and I thought it was very informative. No, it was great. I love talking about it. I, you know, listen, we want to see him do well, and I think now we get a little bit of an idea of kind of where he was last year and the things that he needs to work on in 2020. Yeah, and these uh, are things we'll, we can track now during yeah, the year, we'll which is great. Yeah, carefully watch these. And, you know, listen, I think we'll talk more about it because he's going to have a game where, you know, some of the things that we talked about today are going to come up. And we're going to be easily be able to say, listen, you know, we talked about that on BBK one day. And if you look at what he did here, um, it just goes to show you vice versa. You know, it might be. Can you believe how well he threw the ball the last for the first quarter of the season? You know, in, in, from first down or the or beyond the sticks. I mean, look how much this improved. So yeah. hopefully we're talking about a lot more of that than we are that didn't improve. No question about it. Again, thank you to Pro Football Focus for allowing me to get all this data in order to do this. It was really fun. I'll post some videos up to show some of the film of some of the stuff that I found in, in, in my big study. By the way, folks, this written document is 22 pages. It's 11,000 words. <laughs> that, just so people have an idea, this was my project from like July 1st to July 14th. Um, and this is, it was a lot of work, but I think I learned more about any player or quarterback play than I ever thought I could. So it was a lot of fun. Thanks to PFF for letting me do it. Go to PFF.com. If you, you know, subscribe, you can get all these stats for yourself and check them out on your own. It's really great to see. And thank you to the Giants for letting us do this too, which was a lot of fun. Jeff, good stuff, my friend. You're on, with, you, the, you're on with the Tino tomorrow, right? You got it. All right, yep. be there at 2 o'clock tomorrow. Detino and Fegels will have more media availabilities and more coming your way on Big Blue Kickoff Live on Giants.com. Everybody, be good. Stay safe.